Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there, were, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, Jesus' fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. So there, here's a, a quote from someone you may be familiar with, you may not, but that uh, just kind of tells the, the uh, diversity in our congregation. The, the guy's name is Cleve Jones, and this is what he said. He said, there are a lot of people who would like you to believe that you are powerless, but you are not powerless, and don't ever let someone else feed you that lie. Now, I'm sure many of you this morning would recognize the name Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was one of the first openly gay elected officials in the history of California, perhaps even the country. He was a San Francisco councilman, and he was instrumental in educating the nation about gay rights, and especially in opposition to Proposition 6 in 1978. So those of you who were around at the time remember that, this from the news. And Proposition 6 was also known as the Briggs Initiative, if it had passed, it would have gay, banned gays and lesbians and possibly anyone else who supported gay rights from working in California public schools. So even though he was assassinated on November 27, 1978, Harvey Milk made a significant impact on the world that we live in today. I think if you think about the state of gay rights in America today, I think we can all agree that we would not be where we were today if the country had not gone through what it did in 1978. If you've seen the movie Milk, which uh, is a fantastic movie with Sean Penn, there's a moment when Milk meets with some potential donors of his campaign to run for office. Two of the most prominent gay men in San Francisco, one of them was even a civil rights lawyer, and they tell Milk that they can't, even though they're openly gay, they can't endorse an openly gay candidate. And this is what they said. You can't gain acceptance overnight. The more out you make us, the more you incite them. Harvey, they said to him, step back, quiet down. Well, Harvey's response to them was that he was not going back into the closet. He had spent too much of his time there already. See, then I think this is when you get the crux of the movie. Harvey's character says perhaps the most important line. The line, I think, that helps us understand what Harvey Milk was all about. He says, I'm not a candidate. The movement is. The movement is the candidate. The movement, Harvey describes. Is that I think what he's talking about is an effort to reach people who were marginalized and outcast in the larger society and to gather them together so that they could be free from the unjust external standards that were imposed on them. 
so that they could be allowed to live into the beauty of who they truly are. That's what I understand Harvey was getting at when he used the term movement. Everything that I've read, everything I've seen and I've studied about the gay rights movement tells me that those days on the streets of San Francisco, among other places in the country, were anything but peaceful. And many at the time blamed the protests and the unrest on organizers and activists like Harvey Milk. So it's probably going to seem paradoxical to you, paradoxical to you what I'm going to suggest next, which is that I think of Harvey Milk as one of the greatest just peacemakers in recent history. As the New Testament scholar Ched Myers points out, the reality of social change is that in order for the prevailing conditions of injustice within a system to be changed, they first have to be articulated. In order for the unjust systems in the world to be changed, they first have to be articulated. Ched Meyer says that this explains why public figures like Jesus or Gandhi or Dr. King, although they're eulogized today in retrospect as peacemakers, at the time they were often accused of being disturbers of the peace. They were disruptive peacemakers. Oxymoron, perhaps. With the notion of peacemakers who make peace by disturbing peace, I think Harvey Milk and gay rights movement can provide us a context that might help us better understand the gospel of Mark anew for our own day and time. Because understanding the gay rights movement is certainly something right now that our country has experienced over the last decade that I can't think puts us in the moment to be able to see what Jesus was going through in the gospel of Mark. So my hope is that we can discover that if we are who we truly are, if we become who we truly are, and we make spaces that are open and affirming spaces for others to be who they truly are, there will be times that that is often disruptive. But this kind of disruption is essential to the kind of peacemaking that Jesus calls us to be, disruptive peacemakers. Two Sundays ago, I preached from John. You may remember that sermon. I preached a message about, uh, from John chapter 1 about Jesus calling Nathaniel. And I talked about how Nathaniel had a Jesus moment where he discovered his deep identity. I quoted from Parker Palmer. So based on Parker Palmer's understanding of vocation, I suggested that Nathan's encounter with Jesus was a discovery of his true identity. That Jesus wasn't speaking as an external authority that pointed out all the ways that Nathaniel failed to measure up. Instead, I suggested that Jesus helped him hear the inner voice that was calling him to be his true self. Last week, I tried to help us see how Jesus called fishermen to join a movement and to challenge the Roman Empire's overall restructuring of Galilee. Now, regardless of whether I did a good job of that or not, I think that they too, those fishermen, joined Jesus' movement because, they, because Jesus helped them see beyond their jobs, beyond their immediate economic situation, to realize their real vocation. They heard this internal voice calling them to be who they truly are, so they put down their nets, they changed course because they learned that they could use their skills to become the caretakers of lost and hurting people. They discovered in Jesus who they truly were, and it changed everything. They followed Jesus everywhere he went. Today is the next phase in that story. 
The text places us on the Sabbath in a place of worship where Jesus begins disruptive peacemaking. He's on a campaign with his followers to stir things up. The people described his teaching in this passage we just read astounding. They were amazed. Jesus teaches people and they think that he has an authority that's somehow different, somehow better. Somehow Jesus has an authority they've never seen before, like nothing they've ever heard. What was it that they were hearing Jesus say? How is it that the authority of the religious leaders has been undermined by this person who comes in on one day and begins teaching? See, what they were used to hearing from the scribes were external voices, voices that spoke about the Torah as something outside them, something above them, something shaming them for being something, for not being something that they, that they were expected to be, something just beyond their grasp. And I'm reminded here of how the Gospel of Matthew used Jesus' words to characterize the scribal authority. Jesus said in Matthew, he says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to even lift a finger to move them. See, the teachings of the scribes held institutional weight, but it never invited people to actually question what makes them become fully alive, how to become a just community where people could discover who they truly are. Now, I imagine that there was something inside of them yearning to come to life. And when Jesus spoke, they all came face to face with their deep identity. It told them their place in the world and how to live as they truly are. I think many of us in our religious environment in America today learn a lot from overhearing the story told this way. As I quoted a few Sundays from, ago from Parker Palmer, he wrote, our deepest calling is to grow into our authentic selfhood, whether or not it conforms to some image of who we ought to be. As we do so, we will not only find the joy that every human being seeks, we will also find our path of authentic service in the world. True vocation joins self and service, as Frederick, Frederick Buechner asserts when he defines vocation as a place where your deepest gladness meets the world's deepest needs. This, I imagine, is what the people meant by an authority that was so amazing and astounding that it gave them something that they couldn't get from the scribes. This is what they overheard from Jesus. This is what was disrupting. As we live into who we truly are and make spaces for others to be who they truly are, we may find that this is creates disruption. In a society so saturated with domination, it's disruptive when people become their true selves. The status quo is threatened by the belief that you have to dominate others in order to be valuable. Remember my children's sermon just now. Society is saturated with this notion of domination that you have to dominate others in order to be valuable. It's disruptive to believe that you're valuable as you truly are because that means you no longer have to participate in practices to dominate others. You see how this works? When you truly believe that you're valuable, not because you have to dominate others to be valuable, you no longer have to participate in domination. Rousseau said it this way. It's very difficult to re reduce the obedience. Sorry. It's very difficult to reduce to obedience anyone who does not seek to command. It's very difficult to to reduce to obedience anyone who does not seek to command. Meaning, if you're not looking to try to be in charge, 
it's possible you're not going to follow orders. After calling his first disciples, Jesus' first public act, see, was to teach in a synagogue. And there he encountered an unclean spirit, performed an exorcism. You could watch some horror movies and try to make sense of that, right? See, exorcism, though, this is in a disruptive moment. At first glance, we've been trained to read this passage about exorcism and unclean spirits as if there are these little green monsters that jump from person to person that might somehow or another get inside you. Some people, though, they know that that doesn't work and they say, oh, we don't believe that, so they try to materialize passages like this by claiming that unclean spirits must have referred to some kind of mental challenge. I don't like that way of reading at all. In fact, actually, I think that is bad interpretation, and what it does is it demonizes and dehumanizes people who actually suffer from mental disabilities. I think the key to understanding this story is that unclean spirits that Jesus that's talking about, when Jesus says to them, that they say to Jesus, why have you come to torment us? Who is the us? Jesus is in the synagogue, and the unclean spirit says, why do you come to torment us? Now, I don't know why we imagine a, a scene from exorcism here rather than someone like on a Sunday morning who would hear a, a sermon about racism in America and decide that they were going to get up and walk out. See, in our minds, imagine, our imagination has been shaped so much that we hear the term and un, someone with an unclean spirit says, why have you come here to torment us? And we have no idea what this passage is talking about. Who is the us? Again, as New Testament scholar Chad Myers says, he says, Mark's framing device suggests that this unclean spirit represents the voice of the scribal class whose space Jesus has invaded. The synagogue on Sabbath, see, is their turf where they teach the Torah. This spirit then seems to be a personification of scribal power. You see? You see this? Only after exercising... Their way, their sway over the hearts and minds of the people is Jesus free to begin compassionate ministry to the masses. You see how this works? There are certain people or certain systems or certain ways that our society is structured so that you cannot talk about justice issues because it's going to make someone mad. But there are people who are suffering day in and day out because we can't have this conversation in the open. In other words, the unclean spirit is the personification of the domination system, the rule of the scribal class. Jesus' exorcism, then, is the freeing of the hearts and minds of the people so that they can live into their true identities. By suggesting that their value to God was not something that they needed to achieve, the domination power of the scribal class was broken. And the people discovered that they didn't need to dominate others in order to be valuable. Before Harvey Milk was assassinated, he began a movement that challenged the gay and lesbian folks around the country to come out, to believe in themselves, and to show the world who they truly were. He was hoping that the America would discover that in every family, in every community, they were filled with people who were on some spectrum of the gay and lesbian uh, place. And so he was trying to help them come out so that the world would see what they were demonizing were their families and their friends and their neighbors. I believe that this was the kind of disruptive peacemaking, this exorcism that we see in the passage. 
Milk said, gay, brother, gay brothers and sisters, you must come out. Come out to your parents. Come out to your neighbors. Once and for all, break down the myths. Destroy the lies and the distortions. For your sake, for their sake, for the sake of the young people in our communities who are scared. Exorcism. Disruptive peacemaking. The world will have no idea what we're talking about when we use the term gay and lesbian unless we have these conversations. May be disruptive, but you can't get to a place of safety until you have an open, honest debate, discussion. So the first step, Harvey Milk says, is always through hostility. And after that, you can sit down and talk about it, but you have to be able to confront it. Harvey Milk was reaching out to people who were marginalized and outcasts from a larger society, and he was gathering them together in order to free them from the unjust external standards imposed on them. He was speaking to an authority deep within them, calling them to live out the beauty of who they truly were. This kind of disruption is essential to the practice of Jesus-style peacemaking. See, this was at the heart of Jesus' message of salvation. So it's my prayer today that us as a congregation, we will discover that who we truly are and making spaces that are affirming and open for others to discover who they truly are, this may be disruptive, but it's essential to following Jesus. I'm praying that we may become a people who follow Jesus by learning to speak not external standards that hold other people to standards that they can never achieve, but rather help them hear that voice speaking from deep inside of them, deep inside the heart of the world that's calling us to come alive especially people who have been demonized and dehumanized and excluded from the wider world, that we can help them learn to be who they truly are. So for the sake of just peace, I believe that's the dream of God. So this morning, my prayer is that we can follow Jesus, even if that means becoming sometimes disruptive peacemakers. Amen.